Hey there, true believers, and welcome to Simply Devotion, the podcast that is all about seeking Jesus on deeper theological levels, because he is worthy of all of our devotion. Welcome back to another episode of Simply Devotion, where we are exploring the many great reasons that Jesus is worthy of our devotion. This season, season two, we have been focused on the historical Jesus, the time of Jesus, the culture of Jesus, the life of Jesus. We've even covered some of the miracles of Jesus. And today we will be talking about the preaching ministry of Jesus, a particular sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. This will be part one. I am joined again this time with my near famous co-host, Jonathan Martin, Professor PJ. That's right, Vinny. Uh, Once again, I'm super happy to be here today. I really love the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, I do too. It's one of those things that really actually a lot of my spirituality comes from. And even a lot of my views about the whole world and politics come from the Sermon on the Mount. Like my ethical center comes from, I I want it to come from the Sermon on the Mount. I, I, I go back to the Sermon on the Mount to be realigned in the way I think about the world. Yes. Uh, and and I think there's a reason for that. Um, you may remember, and your listeners definitely don't know this, but when I did my Masters of Divinity, my emphasis was in Christian ethics. And um, you cannot have a Christian ethic without the Sermon on the Mount. Like, like you, you're, you're, any ethics that comes from a New Testament perspective, from a Christian perspective, has to go back to the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus is basically unpacking what the teachings of the Bible are all about in this sermon. So any ethic as a Christian has to eventually find the Sermon on the Mount as its foundation. As a pastor, I'm often asked, are you... A Republican? Are you a Democrat? Are you uh, an independent? Are you a libertarian? You know, my own political position is kingdom ethics. I don't know if that's a thing, but it's my thing. And I, I don't have a political position outside of the Sermon on the Mount, because I think people you vote for can come and go and people will stand for things and come and go and systems will change. Just look at what has happened system-wise in 2000 years. But the ethics in the framework of the ethics of God has not changed since Jesus stood on that mountain and uttered these words to the crowd. Yeah. And, and, and again, this goes back to 
uh, the teachings of Jesus himself, right? When Jesus says, you know, the kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus is here to proclaim, to announce, to usher in God's kingdom. And so the Sermon on the Mount almost takes the role of establishing what the constitution is of this kingdom, this heavenly kingdom that he comes to establish. And so, yes. um, again, it makes perfect sense, right? And those of us, right, who who are followers of Jesus, we understand that we don't necessarily belong to any kingdom of this world. We are just sojourners. We're exactly. we're, we're strangers in a foreign mm-hmm. land waiting for the kingdom to be completely established. So the Sermon on the Mount is literally a political proclamation. It is literally a declaration of independence. Hmm. I like that it's a constitution. I, I would call the Sermon on the Mount, a declaration of independence, a constitution, and a bill of rights. Is <laughs> right? All, ra- all wrapped up in doing. And, 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 and I think, John, it was even in that day. Hmm. Jesus was feared by political powers because they did think at various times he was creating a political movement. Hmm. Both, yeah, both the Jews thought that and the Romans thought that. It's, you know, he gets crucified (laughs) for political reasons, right? Like it's, you know, we will get to the cross. We'll have a whole segment in the podcast about that. But the reason they crucify him is the claim of kingship, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And so here he is proclaiming the rights, the constitution, the independence of a coming kingdom that is greater than Second Temple Judaism, that is greater than the Pharisees, that is greater than the priesthood, that is greater than the temple, that is greater than the Roman oppressor. It is a political statement. And that's why I always go back to it as my political center. When I'm thinking about the politics of the world, I need to be aligned, or any sort of ethics, I need to be aligned with this sermon and the core ideas in it. Now, I want to sort of talk about this for a second. You, you, you've you been to the traditional site where this is preached, right? Yes. Right it's, there on the Sea of Galilee, right by the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's a beautiful location. Oh, my, is it beautiful. It is absolutely beautiful. And I was there as the sun was setting. We were actually in a hurry because um, we were running late. We'd been traveling all over Israel. And we get there and walking down the hill, down the mount, I guess you would say. The the mounts are actually big hills. Um, And we're walking down the mount towards the Sea of Galilee. And the sky is just painted purple pink and yellow it's just it was just something to behold right mm. and the sun was going down over the lake and, and and you could see like the lights starting to come on in tiberius and places like that you could like you know mm. but it, it's a really interesting thing and this goes to a little bit of the mechanics of the sermon on the mountain how it was preached 
because the sermon is on a mountain and there's planes underneath the mountain. Okay. So I just to paint this picture in the listener's mind. You're up on this mountain or giant hill. A giant hill is a better word for what we would think in the West. Mm-hmm. And it and it goes down and then it hits the plains and it's a big flat land. And then the Sea of Galilee. If you're at the top and you go down to the bottom, and we tried this out. We tried this out. If you if you're at the top and you send someone down to the bottom on the plains by the sea, like which is like I don't know, it's really really far. Mm-hmm. And you just talk in a relatively not yell, but you know an above conversational tone because mm-hmm. of the acoustics of the mountain and then the plains underneath. It's a natural amphitheater. Mm-hmm. And you can hear it all the way down. It's like the sound wave goes all the way to the bottom of the plains. Wow. So it wasn't really, it was an ideal location <laughs> for Jesus to preach to 5,000 people. Exactly. Because right. this is the place. Like if you're going to give your, your central teaching, your central sermon, you want it in a place where people are going to pick up every word. Right. Which goes to one of the big controversies that at least exists in the scholarly world about the Sermon on the Mount. And that is that there are two very similar sermons that Jesus gives, but they're a little bit different. And that is the Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew 5 through 7. And that's what we're talking about today. But also the Sermon in Luke. Sometimes it's called the Sermon on the Plains. Mm-hmm. And it's very similar, but a little bit different. Now, the Beatitudes is what we're going to focus on today. Are where it's a little bit different. The rest is different, too. But it's interesting to compare them. Maybe we should do that today. I don't know. Um, but Luke says it is... In a flat land Mm -hmm. Now I'm not saying this is the same Sermon or not It's very similar If it's not the same sermon Then Jesus is preaching his stump sermon In a different location Right. Which (laughs) again would make sense Jesus was an itinerant preacher He went around to different locations Preaching and and teaching and, and healing So I'm pretty sure That the content that he's preaching in the sermon was repeated in, in many places at many times. Right. I a hundred percent agree with that. However, all I'm saying is it could be one sermon because the, the, the sermon on the Mount could also be the sermon on the plains, depending on where you're standing. (laughs) Right. Yes. You're right. Cause some people, some people would, um, would compare the Luke account, the Matthew account, and and just say, you see, you know, th- this this shows you that the gospel accounts they don't agree with each other. You know, exactly. they differ on. You know how how could you know how could the same sermon right be described as being given on a mountain and and on a plane at the that same is time? exact that yeah. is exactly what the secular scholars do. 
That yeah. is exactly, you know, and we haven't spent a lot of time talking about the secular scholars, but but that that is what the secular New Testament scholars say. You know, here's a good example. We can see that, you know, Luke and Matthew disagree with each other. They got the wording wrong. They got they got the location wrong. Clearly, they're embellishing. Except for maybe it's two different sermons. Like you said, he's an itinerant speaker. Or maybe if the traditional side of it is correct, we have no reason to believe it's not. And I saw for myself the acoustics you could hear down by the lake. You could be getting off the boat on the Sea of Galilee and walking up towards Jesus on the mount, and you would hear every word <laughs> just because it's a natural amphitheater. So, right. you know, because we're talking about the historical Jesus and because we're bringing out those things, I thought that was, you know, sort of an interesting point to make for people who may never get this, the chance to go there and see this for themselves. So I think those are helpful things to people who are listening to 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 just sort of understand about the region and the area that that help bring this stuff out for for people. Uh, and I I will put pictures of the mount in the beautiful sunset I saw in the show notes. I always got to remember to remind people to check the show notes. Yeah. So John I, I know we're both big fans of this sermon. We're going to hit up the Beatitudes. What What's your big picture thought here? So when, when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, there's clearly two, um, two sections, right? You, you've got the, what's called the Beatitudes. Mm-hmm. And then you've got, uh, I guess what you would call you know, the rest of the sermon, uh, the Beatitudes seem to be like the introduction and they're almost poetic, right? They, they read as a poem. They're written almost like a poem. And so, uh, and, and they serve kind of like as the introduction. And I believe that when you take a closer look at the Beatitudes, what Jesus is saying in this introduction is basically uh summing up everything else that he's gonna say uh so it's actually a very good introduction it's almost like the gate right that you have to go through so that you can get to the rest of the sermon uh it's if you can't get past these eight sayings then there's no way you're going to receive the rest of the sermon right (laughs) because because these eight statements sum up everything that I'm going to unpack in just a few moments. And Luke tends to focus on the Beatitudes. It has very little to the body of the sermon, which kind of fits your big picture, right? Like basically what you're saying is, at least what I'm hearing you say, is that these eight points are everything you need to know. Mm Mm-hmm. And the rest is just the expansion of these eight points. Right. Right. Exactly. And again, in a society that doesn't have a radio recording, that doesn't have television, right? Um, it is important to be able to summarize the main points, right? In, in a way that people can remember them. 
So I think that's part of the reason why they are written poetically. Um, and they're written in a repetitive fashion so that it's something that people can they under they can pick up they get it immediately and it's something that's easy to remember so that way when you hear the rest of the sermon you're like oh okay that's what jesus meant when he said this that's what jesus meant when he said this and so it becomes a great tool for helping people remember what the sermon on the mount was about absolutely you know I, I I can see that 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 makes great sense. Even today, effective preachers preach with a cadence. You know, they use a a, a cadence and a rhythm. Mm-hmm. You know, and and familiar words that keep repeating but changing, like almost like a call and response kind of rhythm to it, right. because people are hardwired to remember reoccurring statements, and so. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are those who, right? This is this is like a almost like a, a preaching cadence he's got going here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now Matthew opens the sermon as if people are being drawn towards Jesus, right? And again, just drawing upon the location that this happened at, the way they would be drawn towards Jesus is he's on the mountain and they would be coming up the mountain they'd be coming up from the sea because the sea is the highway right Mm -hmm. that's how you get around you get around on a boat so they're docking and they're getting down you know they're 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 walking up towards jesus the idea is that jesus is already there and he's kind of preaching as people come and sit down around him right coming from the plane they're probably coming from the sea I see. And they're as they're moving towards him, he's beginning to teach and they're beginning to sit down around. Yeah. Yeah. I could I could definitely see see that happening just like that. For sure. Right. And it makes sense to the acoustics of the region that they can hear him as they're traveling towards him, right? That this is where it's possible that these two accounts, Luke and Matthew's merge. Right. Because you have both a plane and a mountain, right? right. And it's just, you know. And the only way to the mountain without modern roads, which wouldn't have been there, would have been from the plane, from the sea coming up, right? It mm-hmm. would it would have been a natural migration of traffic. Right. Yes, exactly. Now, this word, this there's a key word, right? In the Beatitudes. Yeah. What's this word? I mean, like, it's one of the most hotly debated words in some circles, you know, like, like some people get really mad if you translate it a certain way and they're like, that's not what it means. So what, get, help us break down this, what is this keyword? Why is there so many hangups on? Yeah, so um, the word translated, I'm reading here in, in the New International Version. And so, you know, the, the Beatitudes, they keep repeating the word, you know, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, right? And um, and that word translated as blessed in my particular version comes from the Greek word uh, makadios. Uh, that word could be translated as happy. And some translations do translate it as happy. And so some people 
especially those that grew up with a version like the King James version or the new King James version, right? They're going to be like, what do you mean happy? It's blessed, right? And that's, that's, that's what Jesus said. He said, blessed, not happy. But we always have to remember uh, that, you know, these, these words are being translated from a totally different language. And the word that is being translated here is makarios. And so the question is, what is the best way to translate this word uh, makarios? And happy is not a bad translation of that word um, because makarios can describe um, this idea of joy. Right, right. But but my experience with people who don't like happy is they think like happy is this like fleeting emotion or mm. happy is this state of being but they want to see this as a pronouncement of jesus of some sort of like spiritual condition or spiritual perk of being poor or hungry or sad like like this so there's some sort of like if i'm poor i'm still blessed you know like like mm-hmm. like god is bestowing spiritual character or spiritual powers or in you know but the idea of being happy when i'm sad doesn't make any sense you know to people who grew up hearing it in a certain tradition and i th- i think it's worth just saying that we need to get past depending upon traditional understandings of things and accepting that the Bible was not written in English. Right. And whatever our favorite translation may have been, the ultimate authority linguistically is going back to the original biblical languages. Right. We can think about the Greek it was written in, or we can think about the Aramaic it was probably spoken and then translated to Greek. Mm-hmm. We can think about Hebrew origins. We can look at how words are used in, 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 in that particular time frame. But we shouldn't insist that a phrase means a certain thing simply because that's how I grew up hearing it. Right. Right. We like our traditions. Uh, we like uh, we like the comfort of you know knowing what scripture says, um, or at least thinking that we know what, what the scripture says. Uh, but the reality is, is that most people cannot read the Bible in the language that it was originally written in. And because of that, there's value in going past what we know and trying to understand uh, something that we may not know. Right. Right, right. So, yeah, so this word could mean happy. This word can mean blessed, but not blessed as in, like, God has done something to these people. Right, like, yes, like he's given them some sort of special, you know, power or or something. Right, right, which is what a lot of people think of when they think of blessed. Like, I don't know. I spent a lot of time living in the South. I know you're living in the South, but I spent a lot of time living in a particular part of the South that they call the Bible Beltway, right? Mm-hmm. The Bible Belt, right? 
and and they always had this expression, you know, and it wasn't a nice expression. It sounds nice, but it what it it didn't mean nice. It was, you know, someone says something stupid, or someone says something insufficient, or 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 someone is not quite normal. And you know, the southern expression would be, "Well, bless their little heart." Right, <laughs> right. This idea that because you have some deficit that God or divinity is looking out for you or giving you a boost up mm-hmm. because of this bad thing that you are or has happened to you. Right. Right. Yes. And yet, and yet that's almost how Jesus is using it. Okay. Right. Um, because the formula that Jesus uses is that he pronounces that someone is blessed or happy that shouldn't be. Um, and so when when we talk about that expression, you know, oh, bless their heart or bless her heart or his right. heart, right? Um, you, you know, it's it's saying, yeah, there's they 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 need a blessing <laughs> because 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 if I'm not pronouncing this blessing on them, like they're, they're a lost cause, <laughs> right? And and that's and and again, it's you're you're creating this contrast, right, uh, between those that really don't seem to be blessed, and <laughs> so you're trying to bless them. And that's almost what Jesus is saying, right? He's he's when we go through the actual beatitudes, which we will shortly you know, we're seeing that Jesus is creating this contrast between uh, those who are blessed or those who are makadios, right? Um, and and he is basically elevating those that society would have considered be almost outcasts. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven right that's the first beatitude yeah it's a little bit different with luke right luke says blessed are those who are poor for yours is the kingdom of god matthew says blessed basically it's the same thing the difference is Matthew says poor in spirit, but Luke just says poor. Mm-hmm. So one could be seen as financial deficit. Mm-hmm. And the other could be seen as a spiritual deficit. Right. Which is it? I think it just depends on whether you're reading it from Luke or Matthew. Uh <laughs> <laughs> uh, when you look at the Beatitudes in in the book of, of Matthew, um, you have this separation um, in emphasis between the first four Beatitudes and, and the last four Beatitudes. The first four uh, seem to be about vertical alignment our relationship with God. Right. And then the last four are about uh, a horizontal alignment, our relationship with our fellow man or woman. Right. So um, if that is the case, then 
poor in spirit is this idea of vertical alignment, um, uh, which is which is this idea of of our relationship with God, and I think that's ultimately how Matthew intends it for it to be understood. Um, Luke, he seems to emphasize the the actual um, condition of poverty, of of not having material wealth. Um, And that seems to be the direction that Luke wants it to be understood as. And I think both can be correct uh, because the Sermon on the Mount addresses both of those ideas. Um, But again, if if you look at it specifically from a structural perspective, it seems as though Matthew is more concerned with the vertical alignment. I, I like that description of the vertical and the horizontal alignment and that the, the the first four seem to be looking at the vertical. Is that what you're saying? And the second right. four are looking at the horizontal? Correct. The first four are about us and God and the second four are about us and other people, which kind of is interesting to me because it kind of reminds me the way we might talk about the Ten Commandments, right? Yeah. Right? Like the first four are about our relationship with God and the the second part, the other six are about our relationship with, with fellow man. So it seems like this is a an interesting pattern we see here. Right. And I think ultimately Jesus is um, echoing the Ten Commandments. For sure he's echoing the Torah. Uh, but the Torah, uh, the teachings of the Torah find their foundation ultimately in the Ten Commandments. So, so the Sermon on the Mount unpacks the Torah, but the Torah is really about the Ten Commandments. And so it would make sense for uh, the Sermon on the Mount to echo uh, what the Ten Commandments, uh, and I think are it's doing. yep, and, and and I think that's a really good point because Matthew is a Jewish writer, and and so so Luke is not a Jewish writer. Luke is is going to and he, when he is recounting them, he's recounting them for a different audience, right? And he's recounting them for an audience that are, are the sort of the underdog. And, and they're sort of have different problems. So, so again, Luke's account is a very small snippet of this sermon. If it is even the exact same sermon. Mm-hmm. And Luke is emphasizing what Gentiles would get. But I love what you're saying about the overall Sermon on the Mount. The larger Sermon on the Mount is Matthew's account. And Matthew would be thinking about the Torah and how does this all recap and re here's a word I'm learning in my, 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 my doctorate of ministry class, reframing the Torah. (laughs) Yes. Right. Yeah. And and, and that's exactly what he's doing. He's reframing the Torah and in the, in a way he's saying, let's get back to what the Torah is really about. You know, we've we've put again going back to this terminology that we've been using for many episodes, right? Let's start pulling away these fences, right? right. Fence after fence after fence that we've put he's around. Dis- yeah, right, right. He's dismantling. He, he actually is dismantling those four political systems we talked about. Oh, for sure. Yeah. When when you what, tomorrow 
next episode when when we start um, unpacking the actual sermon itself, you can see very clearly he's taking jabs at the different political systems. Right. The different political systems, the Pharisees, the Essenes, the the um, Sadducees and the Zealots. He's actually dismantling all those systems. And that's why I called it a Declaration of Independence. That is a constitution and a bill of rights, right? He's declaring that the kingdom of heaven is independent of the Pharisees. The kingdom of heaven is independent of the Sadducees. The kingdom of heaven is independent of zealots who want terrorism and of the Essenes who want exclusivity. Right. Yes. Um, so, so yeah. So, again, when you look at that phrase, blessed are the poor in spirit, Right. What he's basically saying is, is blessed, happy are those who are spiritual bankrupt, spiritually bankrupt. Right. <laughs> Again, that doesn't make sense. Right. It wouldn't have made sense for the people in Jesus time. It doesn't make sense for us today. What do you mean? How could those people be happy? How could those people be blessed? Those who are spiritually bankrupt? Well, because they recognize that they're spiritually Oh, so this goes back to like the the parable, right? Of of the publican and the sinner, right? Mm, yes. In Luke, right? And 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 one is like, "Oh, I'm so thankful that I'm not like that," you know, right? And the other guy is like, you know, "Oh, I'm so wretched," right? Like so yes. so so what he's saying here, blessed are the poor in spirit are like you have the kingdom of God when you realize your true spiritual condition, but you can't have the kingdom of God. Right. If you don't see the condition you're in, if, if you don't know you need atonement, you'll never get atonement. But when, when you know you need to change your life, this is when what Jesus is going to do for you matters. Right. So the kingdom, right? Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom is given to those who recognize that they are so spiritually bankrupt that all they can do is cry out for mercy. Right. And, and that's, and, and that's where the second beatitude comes in. I think the first two beatitudes, you need to look at them as balancing each other out. Right. So the poor in spirit, right. Those who recognize that they're spiritually bankrupt, the kingdom of God belongs to those people. Well, how so? Well, because blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Psalm 119, verse 36, it says, Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. Mm. Ezekiel 9, verse 4. It says, go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. So those who are mourning are those who are mourning because the law isn't being kept. Because they're spiritually bankrupt, they are mourning, they are crying, they are upset because it's they're the not prophets able- of old. Yes. And so then then uh, then Jesus says they will be 
comforted. And this is an echo to Isaiah 40, right? Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem uh, and proclaim that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So, so again, right off the bat, Jesus is saying, look, the kingdom of heaven belongs to people who recognize that they are spiritually bankrupt. And because they recognize that they're spiritually bankrupt, they mourn, they cry out to God. And when you cry out to God in the middle of your spiritual bankruptcy, God will comfort you. Right? Beautiful. And, and, and so right off the bat, right? Jesus is, is, is painting this beautiful picture of the gospel. And he's already, he's already in contrast, right? Cause the Pharisees are already like, no, we're not spiritually bankrupt. We have to follow the fences. We have to keep the rules. You know, we, yes. we, you know, we don't have things to mourn. It's those sinners who have the things to mourn, those Gentiles who have the things to mourn. Right. <laughs> right. He's already taking people off. He, we're, we're only, Two phrases in. Yeah. So because basically what Jesus is saying here, right, is, yeah, those Pharisees that think they got it all together, the kingdom doesn't belong to them. Boom. Exactly. (laughs) Boom. (laughs) If you think you got it, you don't. Exactly. If you don't think you got it, you got it. Right. And so part of this vertical alignment, right, part of having a right relationship with God is understanding our own sinfulness, understanding our own spiritual bankruptcy, and then going to God because only he can help. Mm. Very good. Very good. So blessed are those who are poor in spirit for Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Mm. So if I know my spiritual condition, I have access to the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. Because then I will mourn my spiritual condition. Mm-hmm. And then God will come to me and comfort me and pick me up and restore me and redeem me. And then that leaves me meek. So what's really interesting about the word uh, meek is a lot of times when we think of the word meek, we think of weakness. Mm-hmm. Um, But that's not really what the Bible has in mind when it uses the word meek. Um, Meekness in the Bible, or this word that's translated as meek, um, has the meaning where you demonstrate power without harshness. Hmm. So the same exact word is used to describe Jesus when he is on the donkey 
marching into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, and mm-hmm. people are are shouting Hosanna, Hosanna. Jesus is described as being meek there, because Jesus understands who he is. Right. He understands his power, and yet he doesn't show it off. So, so, so meekness is not weakness. Meekness is like it's almost like restraining. Mm, it's a gentleness. Still, it's a gentleness. Mm-hmm. It's it's like the gentleness of a father when they pick up their child. It's like it's like the gentleness you have as a strong person holding a baby. It's not about can you overpower someone. It's about you have power, you have confidence, you have understanding of identity, but you're holding back for the sake of the individual you are engaging. Is is that closer? Am I getting there? Yeah. So um, it's, it's recognizing that you are in a position of authority or in a position of power or in a position of favor, but you're not using it. It's, it's really kind of like um, attacking the idea of what the zealots were, were preaching. Right. Right, because they're like, we we are God's favorites, we are the chosen ones, we are the descendants of Abraham, and we will slay the Gentile who oppresses us. Right, and Jesus may say, yeah, you may have the right to the land, but blessed are the meek. Blessed are the ones who don't go around acting like they own the title to the land and pushing people around because they think that they deserve it. The people who restrain themselves, they're the ones who will inherit the earth. So real power is the ability to be congruent with your power without abusing it. Right. Again, it's just exactly what Jesus did in the triumphal entry, right? Jesus was king. He could right. have been crowned king. Marches all the way to the temple. <laughs> right? <laughs> and yet, he refuses to let the people make him king. Because he knows he is. Right? He doesn't need to flaunt it. He doesn't need to show it off. Right. He's meek. You know, this makes sense. This is really congruent. Because we, we we often talk about Moses the meek, right? Like mm. Like Moses had God's favor. Like there are times when, when, you know, God's like, look, we can wipe all these dudes out. Me and you, Moses, we can start over, right? <laughs> like yeah. Moses had God's favor, but Moses never uses God's favor. You you don't catch Moses pulling Aaron aside and saying, hey, dude, you're only here because I asked God if you could come along, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like, so because Moses knows who he is and he knows his relationship to God, he never pulls rank, even on these rebellious children he's trying to save. Right, and that's the idea Jesus is conveying. It is, and it's the and it's what Je- it's how Jesus lived his life. Just look at the, the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. 
right? When Satan comes and he tempts him, right? He's tempting Jesus to use his power, to use his divinity for his purpose, right? And Jesus is like, no, I'm going to restrain. I know who I am. I don't have to show it off. Yes, exactly right. Right. This also goes to, you know, when when they're calling him Beelzebub and, you know, and and he's just like, meh. Right. So so Jesus, his philosophy is is counter the philosophy of the zealots, because Jesus says we will inherit the earth. We will conquer by restraining (laughs) They, they want to inherit Jerusalem. They want to inherit, you know, all of Palestine. They, they want to inherit the Holy Land by slaying the dirty, rotten, scoundrel Gentiles. Exactly. But Jesus is like, that's not how you get land. That's nope. not how you get property. That's not how you get territory. You know, you, you want this little strip of land because it's really important. It's a land bridge between all of the world, but I will give you the whole world if you'll be meek. Yes. Interesting. Good stuff. So blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Yeah, it's really, it really is good stuff. I mean, I can't, I can't take the credit for it. Jesus is the one saying it, right? He's, he's the one that, that, that presented this information. Uh, and then we move on to the fourth beatitude, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Um, when we look at this, you know, there's there's a question that needs to be answered, right? Um, are they hungering and thirsting so that they could be made righteous or are they hungering and thirsting for righteousness or i.e. justice to be done everywhere right um so what is what is the emphasis here right do do is it that they want to become righteous or is it that they want to see righteousness or justice in the land? I think that's a really good point because, again, I'm just jumping back to Isaiah in my mind, but not just Isaiah, Jeremiah, all those major prophets. Mm-hmm. Their cry against Israel is right. that they practice and permit injustice. Right. They they steal from the widows. They don't care for the fatherless. Right? They practice Mm -hmm. violence. You know, um, they practice Habakkuk, right? The minor prophet Habakkuk. He's like, violence, violence in the land of God. Like, Mm -hmm. how long will you permit this violence? So you're suggesting that the righteousness here is not so much the pharisaic fence keeping but more that there be justice peace goodness properness godliness in the land i think that it's both okay remember remember when i said 
that the first four are about aligning a right relationship with God and the last oh, four are getting to the merger. Are, the last four are, are about our relationship, our horizontal relationship with other people. This is like a transitional, right. a transitional beatitude. And so they're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, which is personal righteousness. They want to live in such a way that will honor God. But they are also crying out that there may be justice and righteousness in the land, that everyone may live in such a way that it is fair and just and right. So when so I... Right. Go, sorry. So it's this transitional beatitude. It is connecting, right, the alignment with God and the alignment with others in one. So when I am vertical with God, I will promote a horizontal existence with my brothers and sisters in the hope that they too can become vertical with God. Yes. And and true justice and righteousness will exist in the land when the people are just and righteous. Right. So if I have a righteous relationship with God, meaning that I am walking in righteousness with God, then I will treat others with justice. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's exactly it. All right. So we're transitioning. So now it is. Right. So now we're moving beyond right this vertical relationship with god um and now we're we're transitioning to this horizontal relationship because jesus again yes he cares about our relationship with god but he also cares about how we engage in our relationships with other people as well and so the fifth um beatitude is blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. You get what you give? <laughs> right. You, you get what you give. The idea of mercy in the Bible, back when I was pastoring, I, I did a whole sermon on mercy. Actually, Micah 6.8, right? He has shown you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love mercy. And to walk humbly with God. And so Amen. this idea of, of mercy uh, is, is big in the Bible. It's huge. It's important in the Bible. And so I studied it out. And mercy in the Bible is this idea of helping those who can't help themselves. That is what true mercy is. And in my mind, there is no better example of mercy than Jesus's parable of the Good Samaritan. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, because actually, right, uh, and the whole the whole point was about love, right? Right. Like they asked Jesus, okay, you know, how do I love my neighbor? Mm -hmm. uh, and Jesus tells this story, um, and and Jesus says, okay, which one of these guys do you think? you know, love their neighbor. And, and they responded, well, the one that had mercy 
right. on him, right? And this idea of mercy is you are in a unique position to help people that cannot help themselves. So whatever circumstance they find themselves, they are incapable of lifting themselves out of it. They are incapable of changing those circumstances. And to have mercy on those people means that you are fighting, right? Um, Or you are figuring out a way to help those people out of those circumstances. Nice. Very good. And then Jesus says, and if that's how you live, then you will also be shown mercy. And so again, Jesus is connecting this horizontal relationship with other people with the vertical relationship, because who's the one that's showing mercy to the merciful? Well, the implication is that it's God. (laughs) Right, right, right. If God, you know, if you live in such a way where you are helping those who can't help themselves, then God will look upon you and help you who can't help yourself. So, John, this one is troubling me a little bit. So you're going to have to help me out because I'm struggling here. And I'm I'm wondering if our listeners at home, you know, are struggling with this. If everything that you're saying is true, does that mean that Christians who don't extend mercy are not getting mercy from God? So there's this idea of retributive justice, right? Where, you know, this idea, you know, almost like like karma, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if I do something wrong or bad, and you know, it'll just come back to me immediately. I don't think that's what Jesus is meaning here. You know, that God is just out to get the people who, you know, um, who do wrong things all the time. But I think ultimately, right, Jesus is pointing forward to a kingdom that is coming. And I think in the consummation of Jesus's kingdom, when Jesus finally puts an end to, to sin and unrighteousness, and he ushers in this new perfect kingdom that he's trying to establish, then yes, he's going to look upon those and see those who were merciful and show them mercy versus those who weren't and not. It's the parable of of the man who had his debt forgiven, and then he turns around instead of forgiving somebody else their debt towards him, he like chokes them and, and he's like, give me my money, right? And then the king finds out about it and the king's like, wait, I forgave you <laughs> this insurmountable debt, right? How dare you go and turn to somebody else and not show the same kind of mercy? So what you're saying kind of reflects later in the sermon, because like you said, this is the gateway. Mm-hmm. When later in the sermon, he says, if you forgive their tr- trespasses, mm, yes, right, then mm-hmm. then your trespasses will be forgiven. If you forgive, you know, in order to be in a place to receive forgiveness, you have to be congruent with giving re- forgiveness, right? Mm-hmm. 
you know, in, in, in Matthew six, in the next chapter, he talks about that. And I'm sure we'll get to that in the next episode, but, but you're absolutely right. And, and that's exactly uh, what Jesus means in, in later on in the sermon by blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. You know, how, how dare us think that God will treat us differently um, and then not expect us to treat other people in that same way. Exactly. Um, so we have blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's all vertical. And then we have blessed are those who are merciful, horizontal. And now we have blessed are those who are pure in heart for they will see God. And you're saying this is horizontal, right? This is not blessed is those who are keeping their heart pure with God, but this is blessed are those who have a pure heart for their brothers and their sisters. Mm -hmm. I think at its core, it's about hypocrisy. Okay. You know, again, I'm refraining from referencing later on in, in the sermon, but, but in reality, it's, it's about hypocrisy. Um, it's the idea of being pure in heart versus just external cleanliness, which is what the Pharisees were really good at. Right. So, so again, he, this is another getting the ire up of all of the false kingdoms. Right. Um, of course, the Pharisees would never admit that they weren't pure in heart. But later on in the sermon, Jesus starts giving examples that were things that the Pharisees were clearly doing, right? That were not um, pure. <laughs> and, and so even though they, they had this outward appearance of purity, Jesus is saying, oh, and, and because of this outward appearance of purity, they expected to one day see God, mm. right? They, in their minds... They had made themselves spiritually pure, spiritually clean because of all the rule following that they did so that they could one day see God, right? Be in God's very presence. And yet Jesus is saying, no, 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 outward appearance. No, no, no. That's not what God is looking for. He's looking for the purity of heart, mm. the cleanliness of your heart. And so he's talking about hypocrisy here. And of course, hypocrisy, I mean, there's nothing that damages relationships with other people more than hypocrisy. You know, it, it really is the scourge of the church, right? It really yes. is bringing in the modern day here. It is where the church is falling apart. It is, you know, the whole deconstructing ex-evangelical movement that we're seeing happening here, mm -hmm. where people are abandoning what they call traditional religion. I'm mm -hmm. not sure that really is what traditional religion is, but nonetheless, this whole, you know, um, anti-establishment movement that we see where people say, I want to be spiritual but not religious mm -hmm. or or following jesus doesn't mean that i go to a church that all goes back to hypocrisy that all goes back to people 
not being pure in heart. Mm-hmm. It all goes back to people seeing people pretending to be something that they're not, which to me is connecting it back to the meek um, mm-hmm. blessing, right? Like to know what you are and mm-hmm. to be able to hold peace with it. Mm-hmm. Right. Blessed are those who are pure in heart for they will see God. Is this implying when our heart is pure towards our brother and sister, we may see the image of God being reflected back to us as it is also in us, not in a new age way, Mm -hmm. but maybe I can see the beauty of someone else's spiritual development, the beauty of helping someone else out of a ditch. I can see I can see that we are all one people. I can see that they are as much God's image as I am. I can see God's moving in other people's lives. Yeah. I think, I think there is, there, there is an element of that. I think uh, the idea of God's image probably comes out even more in the next beatitude um, than in, than in this particular one. Um, because I think here Jesus is clearly, you know, contrasting those who think that they're ceremonially clean. And because of that, they have atoned for the sin that has separated them from God. So they will see God. Uh, and Jesus is saying, yeah, you think, you think that's what you are, but you're not because on the inside you're, you're corrupt. But in the next beatitude, right? We have blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. Now, I love this particular beatitude because personally, me, right? I try to be a peacemaker. Um, And I know Vinny and I, we, you know, we've had uh, conversations about about um, pacifism, right, and and and, mm-hmm, and stuff like mm-hmm. that, and uh, mm-hmm. so this idea of peacemaker just it hits home for me, you know, personally. But the idea of children of God, right, is fascinating because in in the Old Testament, the Messiah is referred to as the Prince of Peace, and this idea of son or child language is used to describe the Messiah. So in Isaiah nine, verse six, it says for to us, a child is born to us. A son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Mm -hmm. father, Prince of Of peace. So Messiah is the son of peace, right? Nice. Um, and, and so I think Jesus is making a connection here, right? With uh, those who are called the children of God. They are children of God because they are reflecting God's character. They are reflecting his image. They do that by being peacemakers. So those who are engaging in peacemaking are called God's children because they're reflecting God's character. Nice. 
So blessed are the peacemakers, for they are living like they're called to live. They're living like Jesus. They're following the Messiah. They are the children of God. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, and and so, you know, Jesus was the ultimate peacemaker. He died um, rather yeah. than fight. Exactly. He healed the soldier whose ear got cut off in the garden, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, he said when he's being crucified, he didn't say, bring down chariots and slay these people. He said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. So this idea that I am a son of God when I reflect God's character, namely his character of peacemaking, his character of bringing people together. And again, I I just got to say the tension I feel in studying these Beatitudes this way, because in the same way, there's this whole, you know, reaction to Christians who live hypocritical with the pure in heart. There's not a lot of Christians or it seems less Christians or it seems Christians don't have the reputation much anymore of being peacemakers. Mm. It seems like there's this new spirit in established Christianity mm-hmm. that might makes right. Like, like that, that that you don't have to turn the other cheek. That that Jesus wants you to fight for what you believe. And right. you know, that 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 Christians don't have to take it. But I'm not hearing Jesus say what I'm hearing Christians say. Mm. And you're right. And, and it goes back to this idea of blessed are the meek. Hmm. they will inherit the earth you could be 100% right in your ideas but let those ideas live out in your life let those ideas play out in the way you relate to other people don't try to force it don't try to make it happen right Mm -hmm. be meek let your actions let your peacemaking let your righteousness speak for itself. It, it seems to be what we're saying is a lot of various denominational schisms and a lot of various crises that the church in the West is facing could be fixed with some deep studies on the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> particularly the Beatitudes. Like, I don't know, the the Beatitudes are hitting me. Like this is, if the church is getting it wrong, if the established church, if the the named church, if, if, if the perception of the church is getting it wrong, it's because they're getting this wrong. Hmm. Yeah. And that's exactly how Jesus meant it to land on the church of his time. <laughs> and it lands that way today too right yeah exactly and yet jesus is saying if you can't get past these these eight sayings right you get hung up on these eight sayings you're gonna have problems with the rest of the sermon you're gonna have problems 
with the kingdom that God is trying to establish. So blessed are those who are persecuted. Now this is getting hard now because like Christians are sure they're being persecuted. <laughs> you, mm-hmm. you know, we, 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 you know, they might take away our tax exemption. You know, they, <laughs> we might not be the number one religion in the land and we might not be represented enough in mainstream media, you know, like, but Jesus is like, you'll be happy if you're persecuted. You'll be fortunate if you're persecuted. Mm-hmm. You'll be blessed if you're persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Is, is it because of the righteousness that makes this sit differently with us? So we've obviously reached the end. Uh, we have the inclusio here because the first beatitude ends with for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then this beatitude ends with for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So so this this is the inclusio. This is the last uh, beatitude. The poetic form. It's a poetic form, right? Mm-hmm. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying, if you take all of these beatitudes to heart and you begin to live by the principles outlined in these beatitudes, people are going to hate you. You're going to have to re-say, say that because you broke. It's like that other time where you broke away at your key point. If you take all these, take it from, if you take all these things together. If you live your life taking the principles in these beatitudes and applying them in your life, people are going to hate that. And if you actually sit there and you think about it, we don't like the goody two-shoes. We don't like the people who live in such a way that make us look bad. I mean, the fact that we we have to have laws that protect whistleblowers. <laughs> okay? Mm. Shows that we don't like people who are righteous. We think we do. We like the idea of people living righteously. But when people actually begin to live righteously in the ways that Jesus has described here in the Beatitudes, people will hate it because your life will contrast with theirs. You're making me look bad, right? Exactly. Which is really what he is doing to the whole religious establishment, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Exactly. Imagine a group of people. Imagine a movement who, like, began to study the Beatitudes and began to live out the Beatitudes. Who who began to take these things to heart on the level that you're talking about. Who own their hypocrisy, who own their spiritual poverty who mourn for the condition and the reputation of the Christian church, you know, who who realize that they do have a position of privilege because the God of the universe is on their side, but that makes them more gentle and careful with others. Mm-hmm. 
You know, it makes them treat others like the fragile people they are and with the dignity that the image of God in them demand. Imagine a group of people who were so hungry to be like God that they treated other people with privilege. Imagine a group of people who took seriously the words of the Beatitudes. Maybe maybe they just like listened to a podcast and became convicted that they have not been merciful enough to receive mercy. Imagine that they really wanted to be pure in heart. And imagine that they went about making peace where other forms of Christianity has called for war. Imagine if they went around apologizing for the way other people have behaved in the name of God. And imagine if they accepted persecution as a means to show others what God's kingdom is like. Messiah died for others, and so would they. How might that change the perception of modern day Christianity? How might that fix this whole need of people to deconstruct and to get away from the toxic church? Could it be that the church is toxic because the church has forgotten this sermon? Could there be a church? Could the church, the corporate church, be living in an acting a form of godliness hmm. and forgetting the greatest sermon ever preached? How might this sermon change? I don't know, John. My church? The church you go to? The church whoever's hearing this goes to or just how we choose to live Christianity. You have been listening to a podcast produced by simplyvinny.com. Stop by our website, read our blog, Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and all that jazzy promotional stuff. But remember, I'm the podcaster that likes to remind you when life throws a monkey wrench at your head, Jesus is still the logo, the reason, the logic, the word that builds your life back all the way the kingdom of God. Until next time, God will be blessing you. See you at the next podcast.